Habakkuk and Zephaniah. How many of you have ever read Zephaniah? Beyond, how many of you have never read Zephaniah? Raise your hand. I thought so. You're going to be in for a treat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every word. Lord, we know it's inspired. We know it comes from you. And Lord, we pray tonight that your spirit would teach us and instruct us and guide us. And, and, and Lord, just apply your word to our hearts in a fresh and meaningful way. Lord, we need vision from you. We need direction for our lives. And we pray you'll speak to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk and Zephaniah, they lived in Judah. Whereas Ezekiel and Daniel lived in Babylon. But all four men came together in a flurry of prophetic zeal, speaking the truth to the nation Judah that the Babylonians were a coming. Judgment was on the doorstep. Tonight we want to look at two of the prophecies in this last flurry that God spoke to Judah just before her judgment, the words of Habakkuk and Zephaniah. But let me begin our study of Habakkuk with a story, a story from World War II. That will sort of set the scene, get you in the mood. In September 1939, a preacher from America named Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to speak at a church in Ireland. Earlier that same week, Hitler had invaded Poland. And the British Prime Minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, gave him an ultimatum. Unless he withdraw by Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, England would declare war on Germany. Well, just as Barnhouse arose from his seat there on the platform, about to preach, he was handed a note. The note read, no reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. The pastor of the church leaned over and whispered to Barnhouse, I hope you have a good sermon today. It may be the last that some of our men ever hear. Talk about preaching under pressure. Barnhouse uses his text that day, Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. And in his sermon, he went on to describe the horrors of war. And after each statement, he added the words, don't be troubled. Here's how it sounded. Millions of homes will be broken up. Don't be troubled. Children will be torn from their mothers. Don't be troubled. Husbands and brothers will perish on the battlefield. Don't be troubled. Innocent blood will flow like a river. Don't be troubled. Children will be left orphans. Mothers, women will be left widows. Don't be troubled. And on and on he went. Of course, as he spoke, the tension in the room mounted and built and built. Finally, Barnhouse looked to heaven and he shouted, Don't be troubled! These words are either the words of a madman or of God. How can these words be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep? Unless Jesus is God, he has no right to tell us, don't be troubled. And then, of course, Barnhouse went on to explain that, yes, Jesus Christ is God. He is the God of history. Jesus is in charge of every circumstance All of life flows through a channel cut by God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Though man's sin causes the horrors of war, God still controls the affairs of men. He uses even evil for our good and His glory. Jesus is God, and He does not go to sleep, even in horrible times like times of war. 
Such is the message of Habakkuk's prophecy. Even in the face of calamity and tragedy, God is still in control. And the just, those who know God, those who walk with God, shall live by faith. Here's an outline of the book of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, the prophet is wondering and wrestling. In chapter 2, the prophet is watching and waiting. In chapter 3, the prophet is worshiping and witnessing. In chapter 1, he begins in the valley. In chapter 2, he climbs into the tower. In chapter 3, he ascends up the mountain. In chapter 1, Habakkuk sighs. In chapter 2, Habakkuk seeks. In chapter 3, Habakkuk sings. In chapter 1, he starts in turmoil. In chapter 2, he learns to trust. And in chapter 3, he sings of triumph. The book of Habakkuk begins with a sob and it ends with a song. It's a book for anyone who has seen the evil in the world and asked God why. Habakkuk begins in chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. In verse 2, the Hebrew word translated cry means to roar or to scream. You see, Habakkuk is disturbed over the evil he's seen. He has seen a mighty army from the east, the Babylonians, roll into his land unhindered. They flex their muscle and they have stripped good, hard-working families of their homes and fields and their means of making a living. They've plundered homes. These men have abused people. What if America were the weaker nation and Mexico the world's superpower? And without provocation from the Americans, the Mexicans crossed the border, invaded our cities, Help themselves to our land and our cars and our houses and our streets and our businesses. Suddenly, we couldn't move without permission from the Mexican authorities. Our freedom would be gone. Our laws would be irrelevant. Might makes right would be the rule. Hey, if that happened, we too would be screaming for justice. We would be shouting, life isn't fair. Innocent people have suffered. You you see, Habakkuk has made the startling discovery that all of us make at some point in our lives. The discovery that life isn't fair. One day, for each of us, life will reach up and it'll slap you in the face with inequity and injustice. And there's nothing you can do about it. And what adds to the prophet's frustration is God's silence. Habakkuk screams out, but he says God refuses to answer. He's bothered by the fact that God isn't doing anything to restore order. When is God going to punish the wicked and protect the righteous? He wants right to make might. Well, God finally breaks the silence in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. You see, Habakkuk had assumed that God was inactive, but God had been at work. God is saying, look at what I'm doing in the earth. But God is working in a way. 
that Habakkuk would have never imagined. You know, all too often, this is our problem. We make too many assumptions. We want God to work. Oh, we want God to work. But in our way, in our time, according to our plan to carry out our agenda. And when God doesn't, our faith gets tested. Do we trust God in His wisdom? Or do we trust in our own wisdom? Or our version of what He should or should not do? Oswald Chambers puts it, Faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. You see, faith is not always privy to God's means, nor does it even have to like them. But instead, it trusts in God's motive. Never in a million years would Habakkuk have thought that God would use a vile, wicked, idolatrous people like the Chaldeans, a wicked nation like the Babylonians, to do his will. When God speaks to him that he's doing this astounding thing, that he's using the Babylonians to accomplish his purposes, it throws a wrench in how Habakkuk thinks about God. This is not how he assumed God operated. Does Habakkuk still trust in God's motive, despite the fact that he doesn't understand God's means? Well, verses 7 through 11 describe why the Babylonians or these Chaldeans, the same people, were the least likely nation to be used as an instrument of God. You see, they were vicious. They were violent, brutal people. They lacked morals and dignity. They were boastful. And on top of it all, they gave their false gods and their idols credit for their military triumphs. Surely the one true God would not allow a victory over his people Judah and his city Jerusalem to be attributed in Babylon to the power of a pagan idol. Habakkuk knew that it was time for Judah to be judged. She was guilty of sin. But why use the Babylonians of all people? And God's response to Habakkuk produces more questions than answers. And that's why Habakkuk prays to the Lord again in verse one or ch- verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. You see, God is a holy God who shuns sin. Therefore, why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? You see, this is what puzzles Habakkuk. He knows that the people of Judah need to be judged. But why is God executing that judgment with a people more wicked than the people who are being judged? Yes, Judah has sinned. But compared to the Babylonians, they are saints. And yet it's the Babylonians who prosper. And it is Judah who is punished. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Not to Habakkuk. In essence, he's thinking God may be at work in the world, yes, but to me, his ways don't make sense. Sound familiar? Ever thought that same? Question yourself. At the beginning of chapter 1, Habakkuk is wondering why God seems active. God tells the prophet that he is at work, but that leads to Habakkuk's wrestling. Okay, God is at work. But he's not doing things the way you would expect from a holy God. Chapter 2 begins. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me 
and what I will answer when I am corrected. Now, here's a vital question. What do you do when life doesn't make sense? When life goes haywire. When all your conclusions end in confusion. When you can't square horrible circumstances with the hand and plan of a loving God. How do you respond? Well, I'll tell you how. You have a choice. You can jump to wrong conclusions. Oh, God has abandoned me. God doesn't care. God is powerless in the face of life's circumstances. God's hands are tied. You can jump to the wrong conclusions or you can climb to the right perspective. You can ascend to the tower at the top of the wall. You can get above your circumstances. You can sit on the ramparts and you can seek the Lord. You can humble yourself. You can admit that there's much about God you don't understand. But that doesn't make Him any less God. You can wait on God to work in your heart and teach you lessons you wouldn't learn otherwise. Guys, when life throws you a curve, you can jump or you can climb. You can jump to faulty conclusions or you can climb into a conversation with God. Habakkuk climbs to his knees, which, by the way, is the highest climb a man can make all the way up to his knees. And Habakkuk seeks God's perspective. What about you? When life gets tough, do you fold your faith and give up on God or do you fortify your faith and grow in God? Habakkuk chooses the ladder, literally the ladder. He climbs up the ladder into the tower to wait on a word from God. Before we leave chapter 2, verse 1, let me identify for you four vital attitudes that I sense in Habakkuk's seeking of God. Number one is determination. Number two is isolation. Number three is expectation. And number four is humiliation. Notice his determination. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. The implication is, is he's not coming down until he hears from God. Recall Moses fasted for 40 days before God spoke to him. Remember, Daniel prayed for three weeks before the angel broke through and the victory was won. Guys, why is it we pray for five minutes and if we don't get an answer, we turn on the television? Or we call a friend. When it comes to seeking the Lord, we need some determination. It also involves, though, isolation. Notice Habakkuk climbs up to the tower, away from the hustle and the bustle in the streets. He ditches the distractions and he gets alone with God. As I said this morning, I have been on the ramparts of Jerusalem and I've walked the walls. And it is a place that promotes serenity and quiet. In the background, you hear the noises. But up on the walls, you're above it all. There's nothing between you and God. It's a place to quiet your soul and listen to the voice of God, to listen to what he might speak to you. Once a Native American left the reservation and went to New York City. He and his friend were walking down the streets when he stopped right in the middle of the hustle and bustle and all of the traffic. And he said, I hear a cricket. His buddy just laughed. That's impossible. Not with all these buses and cars and ambulances and pedestrians. But he insisted, no, I hear a cricket. The Indian walked over to a planter, dug down into the dirt with his hands, 
and he pulled out a tiny little cricket. His friend was so impressed. How in the world did you hear a cricket in the midst of all this racket? The Indian answered, it's all in how you train your ear. Then he said, watch this. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out a fistful of change, quarters and nickels and dimes and half dollars. And he threw them down on the pavement. And instantly, everyone within a block stopped what they were doing and turned in his direction. Everyone recognized that sound. You see, the Indian was right. We hear what we train our ears to hear. This is why Habakkuk climbs the wall and he seeks a quiet place. He wants to train his ears to hear the voice of God. Oh, how we need to follow his example. Third, notice Habakkuk's expectation. He says, and watch to see what he will say to me. The prophet expects God to meet him. He expects God to speak to his heart. Let me ask you, do you pray with a pen and paper in hand? When you pray, do you expect God to speak to you? Are you ready to write down what he says? If not, why not? When I take time out of my busyness and when I get alone to God with God, I always speak God, always expect God to speak. And he never lets me down. I want to be able to write down those things he gives me, the direction he speaks into my life. God speaks, remember, to expectant hearts. And fourth, pay attention here to Habakkuk's humiliation. He says he's concerned about what I will answer when I am corrected. Notice he expects to be corrected. (laughs) Maybe that's why we don't spend time with God. (laughs) It's because we know we'll get corrected. Guys, whenever I approach God, I need to remember that I am the student and he is the teacher. I've known the Lord now for about 22 years and not once have I ever enlightened God on a subject or a situation. Not once have I told God something he didn't already know. Not once have I given God a piece of advice that he followed or even appreciated for that matter. God is the coach, I am the pupil. God is the parent, I am the child. God corrects, I submit, I learn. Habakkuk ascends into the tower to wait on God, and he doesn't have to wait too long. For in verse 2, the prophet writes, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. What God tells him will come to pass, but it'll take a while. Remember, you don't reap in the same season you sow. We need faith and patience to inherit God's promises. This is the case when God gives us a vision. When God shows us the plan. He doesn't just poof, presto. It's there, it's happened, it's brought to fruition. It doesn't just happen instantly. The vision God speaks to our hearts takes time, sometimes years, to come together and to unfold and to develop. That's why it takes faith and endurance to hang in there long enough for the vision to be fulfilled. This is why God says in verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In the end, God will see to it that the proud are punished and the just will live. But it takes faith. The just shall live by his faith. 
What a message to Habakkuk. At the time, he was living by sight. He couldn't see God's hand. He was living by logic. What God was doing didn't make sense to his intellect. He was living by emotion. He was screaming out in confusion and frustration. You see, the situation didn't look right. It didn't seem right. It didn't feel right. But God says none of that matters. For the just shall not live by sight or by logic or by emotion. The true believer will live by faith. We need to trust God's word in our situation, regardless of what we see or what we think or how we feel. We need to base our attitudes and our actions on what God has said. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is one of the most strategic verses in the Bible. In the third century AD, there was a Jewish rabbi named Simlai who noted that Moses had given Israel 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands, 613 commandments in all. The rabbi noted, though, that in Psalm chapter 15, David reduced these 613 commandments to 11. Then in Isaiah 33, verses 14 and 15, they're reduced further to 6. Micah 6, verse 8, reduces them even further down to 3. We studied them last week to do justly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. But here, Habakkuk goes the final step. And he reduces all 613 commandments into one single solitary statement. The just shall live by faith. It's interesting that Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is the verse that revolutionized the Apostle Paul and changed the first century world. Three times Paul quoted it in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1 verse 17... In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. It's interesting, the emphasis in the book of Romans is on the word just. The just shall live by faith. The just person doesn't make himself justified and righteous through his own works. Rather, God declares him just because of his faith. The emphasis, though, in Galatians is on the word faith. The just shall live by faith. It's not the works of the law that makes a man just or right with God, but our faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul says to the Galatians, not the works of the law, but the hearing of faith. And the emphasis in Hebrews is on the word live. The just shall live by faith. Rather than work and grind and perform to maintain a right standing with God, we're to live by faith. We're to trust in the finished work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us and make us more like Jesus. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is the seed from which all the New Testament sprouts. And this one verse, these seven words, in addition, set in motion one of the greatest spiritual revivals of all time. We call it the Reformation. In 1509, A monk named Martin Luther was headed for Rome. You see, Luther was a troubled man. He was tormented by guilt and feelings of unworthiness. He sought the answer to the question, how can I win the favor of a holy God? He tried to achieve his goal through self-sacrifice and through self-abasement. He would fast for weeks on end. When the temperature dropped below freezing, he would go outside and he would sleep in the cold without a blanket. He even beat himself black and blue with a whip 
trying his best to suffer enough to atone for his sins. Finally, he planned a pilgrimage to Rome where he would crawl on his knees up that long sacred staircase in the church, the cathedral of St. John, whipping himself as he went to pay the penalty for his sins. But as he was halfway up those steps, this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, these seven words suddenly penetrated his mind. He thought the just shall live by faith. It hit him. The just shall live by faith. God himself has done the work. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. Jesus did it all. All God asks of me is to believe. Suddenly, Luther got up from his knees. A free man. A man who had put his faith in Jesus Christ. He returned to Wittenberg and the Great Reformation was born. These seven words changed the ancient world as well as the modern world. The just shall live by faith. When Habakkuk saw God raise up these evil Babylonians as the instrument of judgment, his faith almost slipped. He couldn't believe God would use an idolatrous nation worse than Judah to judge his people. That's why he had to live by faith. You see, God's ways are not our ways. At times they appear illogical and uncertain, but God can be trusted. He always does what's right. He never makes a mistake. He will use the Babylonians to judge Judah. Then he'll raise up someone else to judge the Babylonians. And that's what the remainder of the chapter predicts. The vision in verse 2 that he that is told to Habakkuk, that Habakkuk is told to write down, is the future judgment of these wicked Babylonians. Beginning in verse 5, God denounces the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and his wicked ways. He was bloodthirsty. He was drunk with pride. He was hungry for conquest. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. He reminds me of the Hollywood starlet. She was 70 years old when she died in her New York apartment. She died as she was getting down a box of old press clippings that reminded her of her former greatness. But when she was getting the box down, it slipped out of her hands and it fell on her and she was killed. You might say she was pressed to death. Nebuchadnezzar will also die because of his pride, because of his arrogance, because he believed his own press clippings. Five woes are pronounced against Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 6, he's condemned for his greed. In verse 9, for his gain. In verse 12, for his gore, his violence. Not Al, his violence. In verse 15, his guile. In verse 19, his gullibility. The king gives credit to mute idols. Nothing more than chunks of wood for the victories he's achieved. God closes the series of curses on Nebuchadnezzar in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Nebuchadnezzar has chased after false gods while the one true God is reigning in his temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 3 closes with a prayer. Verse 1 states, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. The meaning of the word Shigianoth is unclear. It also appears at the beginning of Psalm 7. It's a musical notation that means that chapter 3 is a psalm of Habakkuk. Remember, the prophet began with a sob. 
But now he ends with a song. Verse 2 is Habakkuk's confession of faith. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, when I first heard of your plans, Lord, I was alarmed. Now I trust that your ways are right. And even in the midst of your wrath, God, I trust you not to forget your mercies, to show your mercies to your people. Habakkuk has come a long way in his faith. He's learned a lot up in the tower. In verse 3, we're told, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And the next few verses depict the coming of God to judge the nations. Verse 3 says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Verse 12, You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. The Lord is coming to judge not only Babylon, but all the nations. And these are both references to not only past judgments, but also they're a vision of the future and future judgments that are yet to come. In fact, Isaiah chapter 63 describes the second coming of Jesus Christ, that Jesus will come to judge this wicked world. And in Isaiah, Jesus is seen coming out of Basra, or here, Teman, same place, the land of Edom. Isaiah sees him coming out of Teman wearing blood-stained robes. He has exacted vengeance on this evil world. And he's rescued the Jews who've been hiding from the Antichrist there at the city of Petra in the land of Edom. The point here that God is making to Habakkuk is important. He's telling him God will win in the end. You see, reading this section of Habakkuk is like reading a suspenseful book. If you're like me, the tension builds and builds as you're reading and, and you kind of get into it and you, you start to wonder, how is it going to work out? I just can't imagine how this is going to turn. And so rather than torment yourself, you just sort of flip over to the end of the book. And you read the last few pages and then you can go back and you can just read the book and enjoy the plot with a lot less anxiety. Well, Habakkuk was upset at this army that had invaded Judah. But God takes him to the end of time, to the final chapter. And he shows him that in the end, God will prosper his people and God will judge the nations. Trust me, Habakkuk slept better after he had seen this divine vision. And you will too when you read the book of Revelation. Today, life is a struggle. It's a battle. But turn to the final chapter. You've got the book right there and sitting in your lap. And just read it. And you'll see that Jesus wins in the end. Hey, with that assurance, I can live confidently every day. And I can enjoy God's peace and presence in my life. Once there was a man, discouraged, rather bummed out. His friend walked into the RCA building there in New York City. And he showed him the statue of Atlas holding up that huge globe on his shoulders. The ancient muscle man had a grimace on his face. His bulging muscles seemed as if they were almost ready to break. He was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Next, though, his friend escorted him across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral and back to a small shrine that was dedicated to the boyhood of Jesus. There was the statue of Jesus perhaps eight, nine years old, with his arms stretched out, 
and the whole world sitting there in his hand. You see, at first, Habakkuk was like Atlas, trying to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. Perhaps that's you tonight. But in the end, Habakkuk had put his trust in Jesus Christ, who has everything under control. The same can be said for your life. You might be wondering, you might be wrestling, but if you'll wait and if you'll watch, you'll end up witnessing and praising God and celebrating His greatness and His sovereignty over your circumstance. The book closes on a crescendo. In verses 17 and 18, faith reaches its high point. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. In other words, I'll trust in God both in the good times and in the bad times. When the crops fail, when the stock market crashes, when I lose my job, when my teenager wrecks the family car, when I'm diagnosed with cancer, when a friend dies, even then, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. For I have read the end of the vision. And I know that God will prevail. You see, the just shall live by faith. Verse 19 says, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And He will make me walk on my high heels. You see, a deer has that uncanny ability to walk on steep cliffs. He can walk across rocky, treacherous terrain and not fall. And likewise, Habakkuk has learned to stand. He's learned to hold on. He has a vision. And he is trusting God. You see, like Habakkuk, are you able to dance in the midst of danger? Are you able to live peacefully? in the midst of problems, to find stable footing on shaky ground, to be like a deer, deer's feet on the side of a mountain. You want to go from sighing to singing, then don't jump to conclusions. Rather, climb up into the tower. Seek the Lord and learn from Him the truth. The just shall live by faith. Several years ago, in a Maryland suburb, a neighbor's burglar alarm went off. And a screeching siren filled the neighborhood. Everyone expected the homeowners to arrive shortly and reset the alarm. But all day long, that siren blared. In fact, it continued to blare throughout the night and into the next day. And by now, the neighbors were furious. They called the police, but the cops refused to break into the house and turn off the alarm without the homeowner's consent. And it took weeks to contact the neighbors. They were off on vacation in Europe. Understand, Zephaniah was a screeching siren. His words of warning woke up a sleepy neighborhood. But rather than take heed to the alarm, they were annoyed. They too wanted to turn off Zephaniah. 
Zephaniah also writes to warn Judah of coming judgment. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Daniel, of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, and of Habakkuk. He was part of this final flurry of prophets that came to Jerusalem just before the Babylonian invasion and captivity. Verse 1 of Zephaniah begins, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, in his commentary on Zephaniah, Walter Kaiser brings up an interesting theory. Notice that Zephaniah's father was named Cushai. Cush was the Hebrew name for the country of Ethiopia. And according to Kaiser, it's possible that Zephaniah was an Ethiopian and therefore a black man. To this day, there are a large contingency of black Jews living in Ethiopia. For centuries, they were cut off from the rest of the world. And initially, when they were discovered, they were surprised to discover that all Jews were not black. Their form of Judaism, incidentally, is actually closer to biblical Judaism than many of the Jews who grew up in Europe and practiced their Judaism there. These are the Falasha Jews of Ethiopia. And today, many of them have migrated to Israel and are a part of the Jewish people to this day. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 8, Moses told the people not to abhor the Egyptian, but to let the children of the third generation born to them enter the congregation of the Lord. Perhaps Zephaniah lists his genealogy here to the fourth generation in order to prove his Jewish identity. Despite his color, despite the color of his skin, he was still called by God. He was a man who had the pedigree, who had the calling, who was sent by God to warn these people in a precarious, dangerous time. The prophecy of Zephaniah begins with a bang. Verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. Wow. Seven times Zephaniah will use the expression, the day of the Lord, which refers ultimately to the end of the age, when God will judge this wicked world. Like most of the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah's prophecy both had an immediate and a future fulfillment. His words spoke of the Babylonian invasion as well as Jesus' invasion of planet Earth when he comes at the end of the age to bring judgment. You see, there's this local and immediate fulfillment going on. At the same time, there's this global and future fulfillment. Verse 3 speaks of the judgment of God that will one day come upon the whole world. It says, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. When Jesus returns, the earth will resemble a battlefield. The carnage, the corpses, will be everywhere. It'll be devastating. J. Vernon McGee writes these words about the book of Zephaniah. This book is like a Florida hurricane, a Texas tornado, a Mississippi River flood, a Minnesota snowstorm, and a California earthquake all rolled into one. You see, Zephaniah is a serious siren. Verse 4 tells us that God will judge Judah and Jerusalem 
because her inhabitants bowed down to Baal and to Milcom, idols of Judah's pagan neighbors. Verse 8 says that the Jews not only worshipped their gods, they dressed like their pagan neighbors. And it's sad to me to see God's people dressed in the attitudes of the world. In verse 9, God says he'll punish those people who leap over the threshold. If you'll reference 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 5, there this practice is associated with the worship of Dagon, the Philistine fish god, another worthless idol. You see, Judah had become a thoroughly pluralistic society where all gods were viewed as equal. Sounds like America today. Verse 6 says that they had turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. You see, God will judge Jerusalem. Verses 10 through 13 describe the awful sounds of mourning in their streets. The fish gate opened westward toward the sea. Maktish was the business district there in Jerusalem. Throughout the city, people will hear these cries of mourning. Verse 14 through 16 describe the great day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath, of trouble, of distress, of devastation, of desolation, of darkness, of gloominess, of warfare. On and on. Just read it for yourself. In verse 17, the Lord says, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Literally debris or garbage. Notice the cause of all this suffering, all this painful sorrow on the earth. It's summed up there in the middle of verse 17. Because they have sinned against the Lord. The wages of sin is death. In chapter 2 verse 1, there is a deliberate barb. It's buried in this verse that only a Jew would be able to pick up on. God calls Judah, O undesirable nation. But the word translated nation is the word goyim, which was the Hebrew name for the Gentiles. In other words, God's people were no different from the Gentiles, from the pagan, idolatrous, vile, wicked nations who bordered them. Verses 2 and 3, though, hold out hope. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Every morning when the sun comes up on the African plain, the gazelle knows that he will have to run faster than the fastest lion or he'll end up a lion's dinner. And every lion knows that he'll have to run faster than the slowest gazelle, or he'll end up dying of starvation. But everyone knows that day they'll have to run, either to eat or to be eaten. And every person on earth is on the run. Tonight, you're on the run. You are either running to God Are you are running from God? There's a play on words again here in verse 3. He says, if you seek the Lord, you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The prophet's name, Zephaniah, means he whom the Lord hides. In essence, he's saying to the Jews that if you'll humble yourself 
If you'll turn from your sin and seek the Lord, he will hide you from the day of his anger. In other words, you'll be Zephaniathized. From verse 5 through the end of chapter 2, the Lord pronounces judgment on Judah's surrounding neighbors, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ethiopians, the Assyrians. The Assyrians who live in Nineveh sound like a Coca-Cola ad. Notice in verse 15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. Before Coke was it, Nineveh thought she was it. She was proud. How many people have said, I am it? Do you think you're it? You're not. God says to Nineveh in the very next statement, How has she become a desolation? (laughs) The Lord has ways of taking the air out of the arrogant. Chapter 3 consists of more woe on a rebellious and a polluted Jerusalem. In verse 1, she's called the oppressing city. In verse 2, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. That's some pretty strong indictments. Verses 2 and 3 have a word against the princes and priests and prophets of Judah. Seems the only righteous person in the city of Jerusalem is the Lord himself. Verse 5 says of God, then of her citizens, he never fails but the unjust knows no shame. Verse 8 predicts God's plan to judge the nations at the end of the age. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This is Zephaniah's description of the battle of Armageddon. Verse 9 makes another interesting prediction. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. You remember at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages to drive men apart, to break up their rebellion. But in the kingdom age, he'll reinstitute one global language, a universal language that will unite us and enable us to worship God in a single voice. And what will that one language be? That global tongue? Well, of course, it'll be English, and everyone all over the world will speak with a southern accent. Just kidding. No, some scholars see here a promise to restore the ancient Hebrew language and to make it the global language of all mankind. The restoration of the Hebrew language in Israel today is nothing less than a modern miracle. Prior to this century, Hebrew had not been spoken since the 6th century B.C. when the Jews were carried off to Babylon. When they returned, the Jews spoke Aramaic, the language that they had picked up in Babylon. Only the religious leaders knew Hebrew, and soon it became a dead language. Hebrew wasn't spoken again as a common everyday language until the 20th century. When the Jews from all over the globe returned to their homeland, they came speaking a zillion different languages, and communication in the new nation of Israel was difficult. A Jerusalem journalist know a man by the name of Eleazar ben Yehuda. He recognized this problem, and he made it his personal campaign 
for the rest of his life to revive the ancient Hebrew language. He started with a vocabulary of just 7,704 words, all of them taken from the Bible. And the Hebrew language has grown and grown until today, modern Hebrew contains over 100,000 words. Hebrew is the only dead language in history that has been restored to common everyday usage. It's amazing. Verse 10 is another interesting prophecy. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In the late 1970s and 1980s, the Israeli military launched a campaign called Operation Moses, where they airlifted the Falasha Jews out of war-torn Ethiopia and relocated them to Israel. Today, these black Jews live in Israel. They were brought there back during the 70s and 80s. Perhaps Zephaniah, who was their forefather, a Cushite, a black Jew from Ethiopia, wrote specifically about them 2,500 years in advance. In the last days, God will purify Israel and he will bring them back to himself. This is the purpose of the great tribulation. The disasters that God will bring upon the earth are not just to punish the Gentile nations, they're also to purify the Jews. And verse 14 calls for Israel to sing. In that day, her judgments will be over. Her enemies will be gone. Verse 17 tells us that God will be in the midst of Jerusalem. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God will bring Jews back to Israel and he'll bring healing to his people. And that's my prayer for you tonight. That God will rejoice over you with gladness. That he will quiet you with his love. And that he will rejoice over you with singing. You are his special child. He does love you with an eternal love. He does see you righteous. He treats you just as if you'd never sinned. Not because of anything you've done but because of your faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for you. Hey, the just shall live by faith. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts tonight. Bless our lives, Lord. Use us this week to be a blessing to others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.